Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 John. We are making our way verse by verse. We just started it last week. We haven't even gotten out of 1 John chapter 1. There's a lot to say. So as you turn to 1 John chapter 1, put your finger there. I'll eventually get there and ask God's blessing now. Now, Heavenly Father, we look to you. We thank you for your incredible God-breathed word. May it find its way into our hearts and do the work that you send it to do. Change our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I came across a fascinating article in the USA Today. Um, after a string of patients weren't faring very well under the care of a certain physician, a specialist in North Carolina, an investigation was launched. They discovered his slew of degrees were bogus. They were purchased through degree mills. Uh, in fact, there was one called Degrees Are Us. Sadly, though, an eight-year-old diabetic girl lost her life through this man's malpractice. Of course, he was charged and convicted of manslaughter and practicing medicine without a license. So allow me to read a little bit from the article. But questionable degrees aren't just being used by bogus doctors. Employees armed with academic credentials from diploma mills have held jobs as counselors, college vice presidents, child psychologists, athletic coaches, and engineers. While some employees simply falsify their resumes and make up degrees, others turn to what is called diploma mills. There are more than 400 of such mills and 300 counterfeit diploma websites uh, out there, and business is thriving amid a lackluster economy, doubling in the past five years to bring in more than $500 million annually. Almost every degree from aviation to zoology, from biology to theology, I didn't get mine online, can be purchased. All it takes is a credit card number and computer access. Well, for some, it's all about prestige. That's why they do that. For others, it's all about advancing the career and making more money. But regardless of motivation, it's fraud at its best. They are misrepresenting themselves, claiming to possess knowledge or skill or experience which they haven't genuinely earned. They do not know what they claim to know. They cannot back up their lives um, with what they so confidently claim. Precisely what John the Apostle will point out here in this morning's text here in 1 John chapter 1. There was a mutant form of Christianity there in the first century that we spoke about last week. It was developing right from the start of the gospel being presented. False teachers had departed and took quite a large following with them. And they were claiming to know the Lord. They used all the right words, all the right words about the Bible and Jesus and righteousness and, and, and walking in the light. And they had the jargon down, but their lives denied the truth that they were 
proclaiming. And John is going to now simply tell these Christians, his readers, uh, who are really upset. They're confused. There's chaos. There's church splits. Uh, entire families were upset. Uh, John's going to say, hey, look, let, let's make it really easy. There's simple ways to discover who really is a Christian and who really isn't. And that's really the heartbeat of 1 John. What is genuine Christianity? How can you tell if you got the real thing or if somebody's just playing games? And so verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. With that, we pause for our reflections this morning on this text. People can say whatever they'd like to about who they are or what they know or what they believe. But when it comes to the Christian experience, John says the proof of the pudding is evidenced not by our claims, but by the way we live our lives. So let's take a closer look at these a uh, few verses and get some insight about what's true Christian experience opposed to what's bogus. All right, so verse 5 and 6, 1 John says, genuine Christians walk in the light. Let's talk about that concept. Now, walking in the light, incidentally, were the very words that these uh, renegade teachers were using. They left the Christian community to establish spiritual centers of enlightenment called Gnosticism. It would be named that later on in the second century. And so the teachers themselves would say, hey, we're teaching about walking in the light, something that false teachers and their enlightened followers were actually not doing, but what they claimed to be doing. Even Shirley MacLaine, the actress who's very vocal about her New Age spirituality, wrote a book called Dancing in the Light. It's all about uh, being who you are and transcending uh, uh, into a place of enlightenment. And so they were all words. They had the right words, but their lives reflected that they were nowhere near God's light. And so for context, verses 1 to 4, setting up for verse 5, uh, John tells us that the eternal God, the creator of all things, the, the, the logos, the thing that holds life together, the atomic glue of the universe, uh, became a man 
And that logos, that energy, that eminence from God is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, who God becomes a man in order to pay the penalty that we deserve so that we could have eternal life. The only reason God becomes a man is for fellowship with us and to get us right because our penalty was death. The wages of sin is death. And like we talked about last week, it is impossible for the eternal one to die. So how is he going to say, hey, I want to pick up your tab. I want to make it right. I got to pay your bill. The eternal one has to have a heart that beats so that it can stop and he can pay the price. And so he clothes himself with a human body. He's the perfect God man. And he goes to the cross willingly to buy us back from sin and death and the power of the evil one. So John and the 11 others spent three years in close relationship with him. And the opening verses, as you recall, said, hey, we've seen him. We've seen him do the miraculous. We've heard his astonishing words. We've touched his body. He came to invite us into this fellowship, into this life with God and with one another. And now here in verse 5, he's going to tell us what that life looks like if it's real. Here's a paraphrase of 5 and 6. John's saying, here's the gist of what we gathered from our time with Jesus. Here's the message we pass along to you. God is perfect goodness, moral perfection. There's not an ounce of sin or evil in him. Therefore, if we claim to have relationship with this morally excellent God while we are living morally corrupt lives, we're lying plain and simple. Well, simply put, he's going to say right here, where there is no moral transformation, there can be no Christian conversion, period. And you can't argue with John because you'll lose, <laughs> number one. An unchanged life is testimony of an untouched heart. It's not rocket science, really. John is going to break it down for any Sunday school class. Your talk must match your walk, your walk must match your profession. If you say, for example, you're a math teacher and you cannot add two plus two, you're obviously not telling me the truth. So John says, if you claim to be a Christian and walk in the light and yet you live habitually in the darkness, you are not telling the truth. So John says, let me break it down. And he starts with a premise and he says, number one, God is light. Now, this is a common metaphor for the Lord, and the Lord uh, describing himself even in that way. God is light. You know, the first order of business in creation, on the very first day, the very first words recorded of our God is on day one, let there be light. Now, you realize that the sun, moon, and stars aren't created until day four. So when he says number one, he speaks into what is described there in Genesis 1 as darkness, chaos, and void, and emptiness. That's all there was. And then God comes along and opens his mouth and says, let there be light. So with God, we find 
design, order, truth, rightness, wisdom, warmth for life to spring from this light. And so he starts out that way. Let there be light. It describes his glory and his nature. Psalm 104, verse 2. He wraps himself in, in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. But as to his being, he's always represented in this brilliant light describing his glory and his goodness, his majesty. Uh, he also reveals himself in the Old Testament plenty of occasions uh, through light, this flame that sustains itself, this burning uh, holy fire, uh, this light that comes from this burning bush he, he introduces himself to Moses and the people of uh, Israel as uh, Yahweh, the, the I am, Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. He also leads Israel and protects Israel, manifesting himself in a pillar of fiery light through the wilderness in Exodus 13, 14. Now, after this light of the world gets into a human womb, and becomes Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will grow up, and he will stand before people, and he will say, I am the light of the world. If anyone believes in me, he shall never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so afterwards, he takes Jim. Peter, James, and John up to a little hill, and he says, let me tell you, let me show you a little bit of what I'm talking about when I say I'm the light of the world. And he flexes some of his God muscles, and bam, right from his face, the Bible says, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, Matthew 17. So premise number one, John is just saying, God. Jesus Christ, who be uh, the eternal word that became one of us, is the light of the world. He is light. Before Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus was shining in brilliance in eternity past. Over Bethlehem, a light dawns for people walking in darkness. Once clothed in flesh, the Lord Jesus announces that he's the light of the world at the second coming. It just never stops. He lights up the sky as lightning strikes from the east to the west so that every eye shall see the coming of, quote, blazing fire. Again, he is the light of the world. And it goes on into the world that comes. Uh, Revelation 21, 23, it says, the city, the new Jerusalem, paradise, where we're all headed. The city doesn't need the sun, the moon, to shine, for the glory of God gives it light. And here's a quote. Jesus himself will be its lamp. No, there's no sun. There's no time. It's eternity. And where do we get the light from? From the source of all life, the light of the world. So John says, look, premise number one, let's just start real easy. God is light. And for John, the nuance is going to be moral perfection, not just uh, uh, truth and wisdom and power and glory. But for John, the nuance here is in him there's no darkness. So he's emphasizing God is light in his sinlessness. 
not a drop of evil, not a hint of anything foul or dark or sinful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He is the sinless one. And how can a man be without sin? Well, you don't have a father. You are perfectly God stepping through a human womb. You become a perfect human being, and you're perfectly God. You are the God-man. So when the psalmist asks in, uh, rather, Solomon asks in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, who can say, my heart is pure. I have kept myself clean. I am clean and without sin. So imagine everybody who's ever lived in a classroom. Gabillions times gabillions, everybody seated at a desk, and somebody walks into the front of the room and says, who can raise their hand here and say, I've kept myself totally pure, I'm totally 100% without sin, any hands? Only one could go up, and that would be the Lord saying, I did. He told the Jews in John chapter 8, who antagonizing him and attacking him, he says, stop. Which one of you can convict me of one sin? To me, the sinlessness of our Savior as a man, fully a man, is just as great as any miracle he ever did. Walking on the water, raising the dead, casting out 2,000 demons. A perfect life. Every motivation, perfect. Every word, perfect. Every silence, perfect. Every action, loving. Every day, patient, kind, other-centered. Perfectly obedient to God the Father in every single way. He said, I only do what pleases him. He's perfect. To me, just seeing a perfect person and living with them for three years, that's enough to convince me that he is who he says he is. There's no darkness in him, the scriptures say, so not a mixture of good and evil. By the way, the force is very Gnostic in the uh, Star Wars. The force uh, has a, a dark side. That's a Gnostic thought, that there's good and bad up there in the heavenlies. The biblical thought is God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. The Lord will never appear to anybody and say, Lou, this is your father. <laughs> Come to the dark side. No, he's not going to do that. He can't, because there is one thing impossible for God, and that is for him to sin. He cannot, he has not, he does not, and he will never sin, because he is light. He's perfectly good in every way. He's 100% golden goodness. Purity, that's what John's trying to say. Now, he set you up because he's leading you to a logical conclusion with this premise. He's saying, now, with this premise laid, now John comes to the logical conclusion, union with a good God will result in a good life. Now, here he goes after the truth by exposing the big fat lie, which was, I can hook up with this totally good God and live a totally bad life. John says, liar. You can't do it. You don't know. Those who love God and know God keep his commands, period. End of discussion for John. 
anyway. So we're going to let, let's look at this, their claim. It says, anyone who claims I have fellowship with, that word we talked about last week, it means to have all things in common. It's just the same thing as saying I know him, or I'm a Christian, or I believe. All right, same meaning is this that I, I know him, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, yet you walk in darkness, John says, you're a liar. So here's his premise. The, God's union with a human, kind of rhymes there, uh, is the definition of salvation. So here's how you get saved, right? It has nothing to do with uh, your goodness. It has everything to do with you uh, coming into a supernatural relationship with God through repentance and believing on Jesus. When that happens, into your soul comes the Holy Spirit, and he supernaturally unites your dead spirit with his spirit, making you alive to something called a new birth. And that new birth is morally inclined because it comes from heaven. It comes from him. It's a part of his divine nature. He breathes life into you. you if any man be in uh, in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that new life is good like God. Not perfect, but it will start a process of moral transformation that you will be able to evidence by examining your own life or somebody else's life. I mean, here's what they're saying. Here's a paraphrase. If we claim to have fellowship with him, to share all things in common with him, to intimately know and be joined together with the God of the universe who's good, and then habitually, day to day, live in darkness and ignorance, Houston, we have a problem. Now, that, that's an, a little paraphrase. Listen. Listen to how the Bible describes what a Christian is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. That's what saves you. You and God met. There was a connection. And he and you became one. The same idea is in knowing in Hebrew, yada in Hebrew. It means to be sexually intimate as well as knowing. Adam yada, his wife Eve, and she conceived. The word just means know, and if you have a King James Bible, it says Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. I know him. I've become one as husband and wife become one with his spirit. So John's got you. He has got us all. He's got the whole world backed up against the corner of the wall. When he says, morally perfect God becomes one with sinful man equals transformed life. Have to. Every single time. Ten times out of ten times. Period. No moralness in your life. No contact with heaven. It's impossible for you to keep on going in sin and claim that you have seen the light. You know, uh, when Christ comes into a sinner's heart, the drunk gets sober every time. Does it happen overnight? Possibly no. Sometimes yes. Is there a struggle? Yes. But that 
drunk will not be a drunk because he's a new creation, and the new creation wins. The sexually immoral person, when Christ comes into a sexually immoral, promiscuous life, they gain self-control. They stop sinning. I had a, a friend that I led to the Lord. He was living with his girlfriend. He told me, next time I saw him, I'm moving out. Why are you moving out? Well, because I'm a Christian now. Who told you to? I just, yeah, I just, that's what Christians do, right? I said, so nobody told you that. He said, I knew it the moment I gave my heart to the Lord. I knew, whoa, <laughs> what am I doing? I'm not married to her. Yeah, because you cannot continue in a life of immorality if the seed of God is planted in you. And John says it just physically impossible. You don't know God if you're living immorally as a habitual pattern. Everybody has outbreaks. Everybody slips and falls. But as a day-to-day, 24-7 embracing of the wrong, knowing full well with intent, no way, John says. No way. Say what you want. Leave the church. Get mad. Email the pastor. It doesn't matter. It won't change the church. It won't change the truth. He says, you're out. By looking at your own life, he says, there's no way the God of light and all goodness can dwell in that place and not have a peep of light come out of you. There's no way. So he just settles things up here. Sorry, I get a little excited. I get... Can you imagine Paul the Apostle, Acts chapter 90, sees the light, literally. <laughs> Blinds him, knocked off his horse. Who are you, Lord? He meets the Lord. Now, just imagine. He gets back on the horse, and he goes into, into Damascus, which really did happen. But here's where we depart, just for fun. I imagine he comes into a little home fellowship group, and he says, ah, and he grabs one of the Christians by the, by the scruff of the throat. Come with me. You're going to jail, chump. I've met the Lord. <laughs> Yeah, I saw the light on the road. Come on. You're going to jail. What? I thought you met the Lord. I know the Lord. You know the Lord, and you're still going to persecute me. Uh, something doesn't make sense, John is saying. A life that continues like nothing happened is because nothing happened. That's why it keeps going as if nothing happened. John is very simple. Don't get mad at me. Look at the Bible. I'm just telling you. And some of you are saying, we're not mad at you. But there are a couple faces out there. <laughs> All right, listen. 92% of Americans, when polled, we believe in God. 92%. Just read it recently. 92% said, we claim to have fellowship with him. We know him. Really? Let's just take a look at your life. And I think as we do that, we will find that the number and the percent drop significantly. 92% of people saying they know him. Can you imagine Mary Magdalene? She comes to know Jesus. The next week, she goes to home fellowship group, and the, and the, the skirt is way too short. The perfume is like sickening. The makeup, wow. you know. And she starts flirting and hitting on the guys. And she says, last week, brothers, I just want to give a testimony. I found the Lord. 
You didn't find the Lord, Mary. I am sorry. I need to just stand up there and just say it right there for everybody. You didn't find the Lord. You think you found the Lord. If you found the Lord like she did find the Lord, she doesn't do those kinds of things anymore. You know where she's at? She's at the tomb looking for Jesus while the boys are asleep in bed on Easter Sunday morning. She's taking care of business, and she becomes the first witness of the resurrection. She's not walking the street. She's searching for Jesus because why? Something happened, and it changed her life, and you could evidence that. And anybody who knew Mary before could say, wow, something happened to her. If they can't say something happened to you, there's a problem. Unless, of course, you know, you grew up in the church and you've always been kind of walking with the Lord. Then, you know, we don't have that kind of thing. But still, you will stand out like a sore thumb anyway <laughs> against the darkness of this world. So the Gnostics were teaching about Jesus and walking in the light during the day and partying like a rock star at night. Now, Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of goodness, doing the right thing, and truth. Now, verse 7, now with the, the premise rather laid and the logical conclusion given, John is going to deal with the problem of ongoing sin in the lives of those who do walk in the light, because now we're going to find out that what he means by walking in the light doesn't mean sinless perfection. Phew. <laughs> It means that we're struggling and limping along in the right direction, that we're with him and standing against the sin that we see in our own hearts, that we're denying self, picking up cross and following. We're walking in truth. We call sin, sin. We don't try to excuse it away or redefine it. He says, that's walking in the light. And he's going to say now, he says, walking in the light uh, brings us into fellowship with God and fellowship with his children, and he's going to say now, we have an open door to deal with our moral failings that no one else does unless you're walking with God, is God's, the Lord's table, which is a symbolic of Jesus' blood that cleanses Christians of their daily defilements and their moral uh, weaknesses and errors and sins. He says, but it's only open to those who are in fellowship with him. The paraphrase, as we walk with the Lord, listen, we have fellowship together with him, and God provides the fellowship of his children a way to be cleansed from sin, Jesus' blood. Open to whom? Those in fellowship, in right relationship, walking with God, not morally perfect, or we wouldn't need this. So he says, listen, this table is closed to those who say one thing and live another way. To those who are walking in darkness, they're not in fellowship with God, they are not in fellowship with us because they're not walking in truth and in the right way. They've got sin in their lives, they know it, and they're gonna keep doing it, and they're kind of doing it even right now. The Lord says, this table's closed. You cannot partake. 
We can't earn this table, but as we're walking with him, he says the only way to be able to access this table that forgives us on a daily basis is to be walking with God in truth, calling sin for what it is and turning from it. But you cannot be going out, doing your own thing and saying, hey, the Lord forgives me, I confess to whatever, but you really are still doing the same thing over and over again. If you are living in sexual immorality, you're having sex outside of marriage, closed, closed. You cannot come until you walk in the light. You'll have fellowship with him. You repent. You turn from your sin. You call it for what it is. You say, God, I've sinned. This is wrong. I'm stopping. Open. He says, this is how we are cleansed. We turn from the darkness. We walk in the light. We call it for what it is. We own it and then disown it. And then we come to the table. In Corinth, you remember, they had a little bit of a problem with this. There were folks who were out of fellowship with God, not walking in light, just sinners who just kind of infiltrated the church. And here's what they did. At the communion table, the love feast, the agape gatherings, I've told you about this several times, uh, they would seduce the women, they would get drunk, on the communion wine, there would be gluttonous and immoral. Paul the Apostle hears about it, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, uh, have you guys lost your mind? You're not in fellowship with God. You're not in fellowship with the people, and you can't come to the table. But because you're out of fellowship with God, walking in darkness, walking in sin, coming to the table anyway, presumptuously drinking judgment upon yourselves, he says, have you looked around and noticed you, some of you are sick? Some of you are dying. Why? You have invited the discipline of God because this is off grounds to those who will not turn from darkness, who are out of fellowship with God and think that they can go on just popping this while they do whatever they want in the world. No way. God says, I'm not mocked. You cannot do that and get away with it. So it's open for those who are struggling and wiping out with their sin. But at least when you wipe out, you say, man, you know what? That's a sin. I hate it. I may do it again. I'm not making any promises because I make a lot of promises and I break it, but I'm determined in this moment never to do that again. I've talked to my pastor. Some friends are, I'm accountable to. It's out. It's in the light. It's confessed. You, you've called it for what it is. You own it. You're turning from it. Boom, open. No problem. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to be at the table. The reason you're at the table in the first place is because we're all moral losers. <laughs> we all need to be at the table. Let me not discourage you from coming here, but do let me discourage you. If you think you can live out in the world, be sexually promiscuous, be into porn every single day, he says to you, you can't know God. You cannot possibly know God and be into porn every single day and not stop. There's no way. Argue with him. That is his word. You can, you can have a besetting sin that you struggle with your entire life. But you will have stops and starts. You will have long times of stopping. You will have progress. And we will see the light of moral behavior in a lot of other areas, too. So it's not that we have to be perfect. 
but you can't just go on day to day living like an atheist and call yourself a Christian. Some of the atheists don't even do porn. They find it uh, classless. And here we are, Christians saying, oh, I know the Lord. I'm one with Jesus, the epitome of goodness and purity. And look what I do every day, here and here. John says, I'm not buying it. So be careful. That's my job. <laughs> it's my job. It's no fun. Someone has to do it. <laughs> Let's move on. Verses 8 through 10. If we claim that we don't sin, we're just fooling ourselves, and the truth is very far from us. But if we agree with God that we've sinned, acknowledging those sins, confessing them, he's true to his word, he's promised complete forgiveness of those sins and to cleanse us from moral filth. But again, if we say we haven't sinned, that's like calling God a liar since he says we do. So Romans chapter 3, verse 23, something we all know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 14, 3 says, all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So at, at, in one breath, he's saying, if the Lord is in your life, you're going to have some moral transformation. On the other hand, he says, and by the way, you're going to have some failings, and let, let's show you how to deal with that. And so it's a relief to know that he's not looking for perfection. He's just looking for struggling with him in the right direction. And so he says here, here's the key. But here's what the Gnostics were saying, all right? Just it, it'll aggravate you, hopefully, as much as it aggravated me. Uh, it, it wasn't like they would say, because here's the claim, we haven't sinned. We have no sin. But they weren't claiming that they've never failed morally. They're not saying that they're perfect. They just redefine what you mean by sin. And here's what the Gnostics would say. We've come into this light, and we have transcended your primitive, archaic concept of good and bad, right and wrong, heaven and hell, God and the devil. We're way above that. See, so they weren't saying that they don't have problems living morally because they would say what we call that is the, the human condition, not just the way we are. So their mantra was this. It's all about love, but I'm a loving person. Oh, I'd give you the shirt off my back. That's what's important. To live in peace and tolerance, to coexist, to do no harm. A very good bumper sticker of New Age philosophy. Just do no harm. Do your best to be a good person. Be a person of integrity. So they're saying, uh, and then you say to that person, well, have you sinned? And they say, well, not really in the way you think of sinning. I may fall short. Sometimes I'm not as honest as I should be, but I wouldn't call that a sin. That's what they were saying, finding the wiggle room around that, trying to say that, you know, if we have to be uh, submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and be morally accountable to one God who has absolute truth that says, thou shalt and thou shalt not, they say, you know what? And here's the quote that should make you a little upset. The archaic Christian concept 
of sin is repressive, restrictive, and divisive. It creates in-groups and out-groups. It fosters fear and guilt and shame. We need to grow up from our childish need to fit everything in neat black and white categories and be okay with who we are and make life a more harmonious and happy adventure as we celebrate who God created us to be. That's how they talk. And they think we're crazy. They think we're crazy because they look at us saying, you know, uh, there is a right and there is a wrong. And that hurts people's feelings and it, it upsets families. And Jesus said, you know what? I didn't come to bring peace. Everybody's singing Kumbaya holding hands. He said, I came to bring a sword and to put it in the hand of a father against his son. And because of me, families will be split and polarized about what they think about Jesus Christ. He said, don't think I came to make peace at any price. He said, no, I came and I upset the world because you're going to have to make a decision. And people's feelings are going to get hurt and you're going to lose family and friends because of your decision to uh, side in the truth. But so they tried to explain all that away and uh, just everybody just hold hands and love one another. The problem with that is it makes God a liar because to deny sinfulness then is to forfeit forgiveness because the Lord has said the way to be forgiven is to confess it. And if you can't confess it, you're out. You'll miss heaven completely. There will not be one person in heaven that said, I never sinned. <laughs> you have to confess your sins in order to be forgiven. Now, the word confess in the Greek is homo logeo. It means same word. Those are two words put together. It means same word or to agree with or to concede or to admit. So here's what God's saying. Just admit it and I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you completely. All I want is you to cry uncle, to see the thing and say, yuck, that's bad. I did it. I'm sorry. I turn away from it. And he says, enough, done. I'll take it away. That's all he's asking. And for you to shut off your cell phone. <laughs> he just threw that in at the last second there in the Greek. So confess your sins. Here's the key. Call it for what it is. Uh, my very first words to the Lord, 19 years old, I had that revelation in a nightclub. I walked out of the nightclub on the sidewalk there in front of the club with my brother. We both had a, like a supernatural awakening to the God of the Bible. My first words were, I looked up at the sky and I said, God, you're right, I'm wrong. My very first words. Bing, 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 the lights went off, the bells and whistles, the gates opened wide. He says, you're in, child of mine, simply by confessing and agreeing, just to say, uncle, father, please, you're right, I'm wrong. And uh, the Gnostics would not do that. The Gnostics found a way to excuse it. What is wrong with loving one another? This is who I am. This is who you made me to be. Excuse, 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 so that you can do what you want to do and satisfy and gratify your sinful cravings. 
God says that that's going to get you nowhere except deeper in sin and bondage. And so he says, confess. Now, it's important to realize as we come to the communion table that when you believed on Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, paid for completely, 100%, done. Salvifically, your sins are gone. Relationally, you have a walk with God that requires confession of sin for fellowship reasons, relational reasons for God. He says, if you're grieving the Holy Spirit, if you're doing things that are, are out of line with God's word, you need to confess those things. I, I love the example. I'm, I use it a lot. John 13, on the night the Lord was betrayed, at the Last Supper, uh, seeing that none of the guys would wash the feet because there was nobody to do it, Jesus dons an apron, uh, girds himself with a towel, and starts to wash the disciples' feet. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, uh, <laughs> you wash my feet? No way. And so the Lord says, Peter, listen, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part with me. So Peter overreacts, as usual, and he says, uh, then give me a full-on bath, man, a shower, head to toe, wash me, every part of me. And the Lord says, Peter, listen, he who's had a bath is clean already. You only need to keep your feet clean, to wash your feet, you see? And he says, you're clean. And then he says, but not all of you. And he looks, sorry, whoever's over here. Uh, oh, you picked the wrong seat today. <laughs> Let me look. And then he looks over here at the drummer. And he says, but not all of you have had a bath. All I need to do is relationally take care of your uh, daily sins that you confess. But some people need a bath because they're not saved at all. Our situation is when we take communion and when you daily confess and repent. I hope you confess every day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't confess something, an attitude, stuff that goes through here and in here and comes out of my mouth. I mean, even I'm telling you the truth here. First service, I met a new couple and they said something and I said something back and it just didn't sit right with me. It was a little, I, this is going to really surprise you, but it was a little cocky. It was a little arrogant, you know? And so I'm sitting over there having communion, and all I can hear is that line that I said over and over again. And now when that happens, then you, what do you do? You homo logeo. You agree. Yes, God. That was a dumb thing to say. It was sinful. I'm sorry, I turn from that. And as soon as I see them, I'm going to talk to them about it. Bang, done, clean, gone. It's when we cover it up and say, oh, that wasn't so bad. And redefine things. He says, you're never going to get anywhere with that. When God touches your conscience and says, look at me. You can't go on doing things like this. Stop now. Then you do. And he honors that. So let me just read the last little, two, little paragraph, make a comment, and then we'll take communion. Verses 1 and 2, let me paraphrase. It's beautiful. 
So John says, after he tells everybody, look, it's true, Christians sin, and you can still be saved. And so he needs to counter that. And he says, well, look, my dear, dear friends, the, the whole point of all this that I'm saying is that we don't sin anymore. But if we do, we have someone who speaks in our defense to God the Father. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, God the Son. Now listen to this. He is the payment. That word, atoning sacrifice, the real word is propitiation. And since nobody knows what that word means, the NIV went to atoning sacrifice. But most people don't know what that means either. And so let me tell you what that is. It's a payment that takes away the wrath of God. That's exactly what that word means. He's the payment. Jesus is the payment that appeases God's wrath. He's not mad anymore. He's not mad at you because of what Jesus did. He's the payment who turned away God's wrath. He's the one who took the beating for us, and not just for us, but he paid for the sins of the world. So he says, yeah, we can still sin, and yes, there's a way to be forgiven, but the whole point is not to sin. As soon as Christians hear, well, it's okay, and I can ask forgiveness, and that's kind of what God does, then we, we, we get careless. But John's saying, the whole point of what I just told you is not to encourage you to be careless about sin, but so that you don't sin anymore. Look what it cost our Savior to get us out of darkness, and we keep wanting to go back to the thing that cost him his life. The thing that would destroy us and give us emptiness and frustration and bitterness and problems. So he says, don't do that. It's inconsistent with God's nature. It's contrary to, this, to your, your true self. It interrupts fellowship with God. It upsets fellowship in, in the house of the Lord. It invites God's disciplinary actions. It's always found out. It's always destructive. So don't sin. But he says, but if you do, and we do, Unbelievably, with all of that knowledge and with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we still sin. And he says, remember, God knows how guilty, fearful, and anxious and upset you, a true Christian is when they sin. When we fall, and depending on what it is, it's awful to feel that grief in your heart and that guilt and that you just don't feel right. And I mean, I can't even look at anybody until I feel I'm right with the Lord. I, I mean, this is what he's talking about. He says, I want you to know there's somebody. Don't, don't freak out. There's somebody who will speak to God the Father. And guess who it is? It's God the Son on your behalf who is the payment. He's the payment. He's got this proof right there. He just has to look at it. His side, his hands, paid in full. And he goes to before the God the Father and says, this kid's okay. He's one of us. He's covered. Payment plan I paid, remember? Paid. So when you do sin and you're all like crazed out, he says, you've got a friend in high places. He's your defense attorney. He stands there saying, I'm the payment. I'm the very payment. He's not even saying, hey, look, check the records. I think there was a payment. I, he is the payment. And we stand really before him. And I close with a story. 
I've used a lot. It's one of my favorite stories about my sister and uh, happened years and years ago, but it's my favorite story about having a friend in high places. And I'm gonna tell it again. Uh, and uh, many of you already have heard it. With that, friend in high places, my sister, uh, she was an a unwed mother as a teenager. She had a little baby living in a lot of poverty and uh, lots of problems. So she's 18 or 19 or younger with a little baby, infant. Uh, she had a lot of traffic citations that she neglected to take care of and they turned into warrants and fines and fines and trouble. Uh, she didn't have a car, she couldn't get to the court, all kinds of problems. So one day, it was like coming down to, we're gonna throw you into jail. You get to the court on this date. So she gets on the bus with her baby, diaper bag, big mess, chaos always, and she's got all her papers falling out of her purse and she's really upset and she's sitting next to this guy and uh, she just turns to the guy for help with the baby and the papers, and she's crying, and she's saying, where do I go for this court thing? And he seems to know a little bit about pointing her in the right direction. And uh, she's telling the whole story about her warrants and what, she, what happened and all everything, right? She's just a big mess. So they get off the bus. He goes left. She goes right. She goes into the courtroom. She's waiting for her turn. Well, the bailiff comes in and says, all rise. And that man who was sitting next to her, talking to her, comes out in a black robe. He's the judge. <laughs> so my sister's just sitting there. Blah, 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 blah. She doesn't know what to think, because she had no idea. And she just told him everything and just was sobbing. He calls her up. She goes up. She starts trying to explain things, and he starts taking control, and he says, ma'am, I know all about this case, and he starts dismissing matters left and right, absolving fines left and right, until she got to the bottom of the whole thing, and he kept saying, dismiss, let's dismiss that one as well. Now, I've heard you've had car trouble, boom, dismissed, boom, dismissed. She left, no warrants, no fines, zero, in the clear with a real nice grin and a little bit of a wink that just said, got you covered. You know, you never know who you're talking to on the bus. <laughs> Listen, friend, it, and I, I, I called my sister a few months ago and I said, Jody, I get so much out of that story and I just want to tell it the way I tell it just to make sure over the years something hasn't crept in. <laughs> And so I, tell, I told her the story, and she goes, oh, yeah, you're leaving out a part, you know? And it was just a fascinating thing, a real blessing to her. Listen, you got way better than that. The one who's going to stand up is the God who spoke this world into being, who is your payment. And he's going to say, let me speak a good word on their behalf. Nobody's going to have a problem with that. You're free and clear. Does this make you want to sin, or does it make you want to, hey, how can I say thank you for that kind of love? I'm going to do what you said, deny myself. When, when matters are inconsistent with Christian faith, I'm going to say no, 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 all day long. Number two, 
in matters that are inconsistent with your holy word, I'm going to die to that. Oh, I want to, but I'm going to die. I'm going to play dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like you said, to pick up my cross and follow. And then I will follow you, Lord. Why? Because of the love I have for you and the love you showed me. That's enough to carry us and to remember what he did for us. So this morning, as the brothers come forward, we'll take communion. We'll celebrate what our friend in high places, our defense attorney and judge and creator of the world. He, has, he wears a lot of crowns, shall we say, instead of hats. As the worship team takes their place, and Shelly's going to sing for us while we reflect over the bread, let me explain that first we pass the matzah out to everybody. Now listen. If you're living with somebody and you're not married to them, the table's closed. I'm sorry. If you're stealing from your company and nobody's caught you yet, the table's closed. If you're gossiping every single day and tearing people's lives apart, talking smack about them, nonstop, you just do it all the time. And you're going to do it tomorrow, rain or shine table's closed. If you don't know the Lord, the table's closed. Now, if you're sitting there going, you know, I've got a problem with porn. I'm going to, God, I am sorry. I've been sexually immoral. I'm stopping. And I've said this before, but I'm going to go over at the end of the service, and I'm going to confess to a prayer partner and they're going to pray over me. And I'm going to come and take communion. Table's open. It's all about your heart, about that sin. But search yourself right now. You'll all find something, because I got stuff. Call it out. Say, Lord, about that attitude, about this, the thing that you know about. Sin, I'm sorry. I turn from it. Thank you for dying for it. And I'm going to take communion just knowing that you're going to wash me clean and give me new power and resolve over that kind of thing. As long as your heart's right, the table's open. Don't misunderstand me. You have to be some kind of saint out there because we all have issues of sin.